Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. It's Allison. I have a bunch of questions today for our Q&A session. I try to intersperse the Q&As with the interviews. But every Thursday I have a Facebook Live and often we run out of time. It's a, it's a Eastern Standard Time, 12 noon to 12.30. And if I don't get to your question, I encourage people to email me their questions and I answer them here on the podcast, which go up every Monday. So uh, let me just catch up on some of those. I've got a, hi, Allison, just finished watching your Facebook Live. I was the next question in line when you had to finish. So sorry. I would love for you to answer my question on your podcast. So her question is this. I have a two and a half year old who has incredible tantrums or meltdowns. I'm training myself not to get upset myself when this happens, but to stay with her, model calm, take deep breaths, and let her express her feelings until she's finished. On the whole, I am getting better at helping her through these big feelings. What I am still unsure about is that when these tantrums happen in public. The other day, we were walking home from daycare, and in the middle of a busy sidewalk, she had one of her biggest fits, full-on screaming. It's hard for me to maintain my calm when people are staring at me, and I start to feel like I'm doing something wrong. I feel like in these situations, I need to get her out of there to a place where it is safer and quieter so she can release her feelings. But I feel like a monster when I have to restrain her and put her in her stroller or pick her up and carry her somewhere. I guess my question is, am I doing the right thing by removing her from the situation? And is there a way to do it more gently? Or do I just have to get her out of there? Also, at what point should I be concerned that these aren't normal 
toddler tantrums. Does my daughter have a problem that I need to get checked out? It always seems to be me that I'm the only mom who is frequently seen walking home from daycare with a screaming child. So thank you for the question. Uh, I can tell you that uh, at two and a half, lots of kids are still figuring out emotional regulation. So tantrums at two and a half do happen. Um, It's how we respond to them that helps our kids learn to emotionally regulate and figure out what's going on. So I'm thankful for the question. If you would like to speak to your daycare to get confirmation, they probably see many teary-eyed kids going home at the end of the day. So no, you are not alone. Now, I can tell you as a nursery school teacher myself, sometimes what happens is kids are in a classroom where they're really given a lot of responsibility, a lot of respect, a lot of autonomy. And at home, they have to um, face a family environment that might be a little bit more discouraging. I don't know if yours is. I'm not saying this is the answer, but something to check out. So if at school, you're allowed to put on your own coat and you're responsible for cleanup and and at home, you're like thrown on your mom's hip and you're a pacifier stuffed in your mouth. And, you, you know, your parents talk to you in baby talk. It might be like, Ugh, I don't want to go home to that environment. Um, so so sometimes we see a hard departure from school. So that it could be, you know, do a little check about that. The other thing I know with my kids is that my kids were exhausted after a day of daycare and they would get, you know, the hangries, as we would call it. And so I always made sure that my kids had some kind of you know, sugar boosting, uh, blood glucose level boosting something, my, my favorite of the day. And you can judge me all you want, uh, but I found chocolate milk was just the trick to get that transition through. So I always sort of picked my kids up with chocolate milk. Um, so again, experiment with that. But how do you handle the, the tantrum in, in public? First of all, I think all of us are so uh, sensitive to judgment, but if we know that we're doing the right thing, really, who is who is judging? I mean, think about yourself. Mostly what I see is, is people saying there, but for the grace of God, go I. And, oh, I've been there too. I'm a mom. So long as they see you keeping your calm and not losing it on your kid, then they're going to know that you're just an average mom and you just got a two and a half year old that's dysregulated and um, and you're just and you're doing your best. I really think that's what most people think. So keep doing what you're doing at home. Keep yourself calm. Lots of deep breaths. Chatting with her. My general rule is, is you know, if if they're not disturbing other people and things are going to amplify, if I have to kind of try to move them or whatever, I, I, I try to like maybe just sit down beside as opposed to removing them. Like in a restaurant where they're screaming and it's disturbing other diners, I would then remove her. But if it was like in a park or in your, you're seeing a busy street, so long as she's safe and, you know, who cares? It's just people walking by. I might just sort of hang there. Now, if you think she's going on and on because other people are there or they're commenting or it's too energetically busy and charged and she needs a quieter, calmer space, for those reasons, I think it would be fine. But, you know, to sit down next to her on the pavement and to rub her back and to get a little, you know, juice out of her cup or her little stuffed animal out of the stroller and just to say, you know, oh, we're having a tough day. This is a tough day. Things are not going the way you like. You are some upset. Just those calming kind of reassuring words. This too shall pass. Let's get ourselves home and get on with the better part of the day. If somebody walks by and hears you saying that, 
they're, they're going to know that that you know it's this is uh, just the work of parenthood. So so don't worry about that. If you do feel that you have to pick her up and and move her. And I've had to do this with even my daughter in kindergarten. So she, I think she was closer to seven. She was big. But the idea always is to give her choice first. Uh, so a good move for a tantruming child, get down low, squat, you know, again, get in close and just say, you know what, We I know you're upset, but we need to move along now. We need to get in our stroller. Can you come in your in the stroller on your own or, or do you need some help? And so, so long as you're being calm and you give her that choice, when she keeps kicking and screaming, you can say, well, we do need to move along. So I guess I have to help you with that. That's okay. I can, I can help you in. And so you pick her up and she might be kicking your shins and whatever, but you just keep moving along. Or again, this is, you got to experiment with her temperament. You might stop temporarily and say, oh, oh, looks like you really want to get yourself in the stroller. And some kids will then jump to it, not wanting you to touch them and get in the stroller. So if you want to give her like a second chance when she pushes back, but ultimately we need to, to get her in there. So just be calm and respond to the needs of the situation and the needs of the situation are we need to get moving along. And I would keep giving choice. Okay, so we're in the stroller. That's great. Now we need to get the little buckles on so that you're safe in the stroller. Can you can you push your tummy down in there or, or do I need to help you with that? And if she doesn't, you know, cooperate on getting the straps done, then you can use your just the appropriate smallest amount of physical force to actually push down her tummy to get the buckles done. And it's again, it's about the minimal amount of force required to get the job done. That's needs of the situation and always offering the choice first for them to do it autonomously and cooperatively first and then just moving along as the needs of the situation require. And and so what about the judgment? We just have to we just have to let it go. You are doing the right thing. And often kids will tantrum more in public and carry on more because they know that we tend to cave more because of the stressors of people watching. So they can often explode more loudly, more aggressively because they're playing to an audience or they know that you'll you'll respond to them in a different way when you're being watched. So hang in there. I think you're doing the right things. I uh, hope that's uh, helpful to you. Hi, Allison. I just missed getting this question in on your Thursday Facebook Live. So sorry, popular, popular time. Sorry for the hard cutoff. Um, my just turned seven-year-old has discovered whistling and loves doing it. His 10-year-old brother can't whistle and is a little sensitive with sensory things. So the sound really irritates him. Little brother knows that and weaponizes it, of course. He uses it as a defense mechanism and a way to get back at his brother when he does something he doesn't like. He will also sometimes respond with angry outbursts of whistling when he... When me or his dad ask him to do something that he doesn't want to do, like transition when it's time to turn off a video game or sit down for dinner, the sound doesn't bother me, and I understand his motivation when it happens, so I try not to pay too much attention to it. I grew up with a sister, and we fought and did little things to annoy each other, so I get it. I will usually try and connect with him and solve whatever the issue is, but it really bothers my husband, who is an only child and has a very authoritarian parenting style. He and my 10-year-old both get very angry, and it usually ends with Daddy yelling and doling out random punishments like taking away his iPad for the day. I've tried encouraging him to ignore it so that they don't give the behavior power, but they just can't let it go. I tried to make a rule that you can only whistle outside or in his room with his door closed, but he still does it, of course. I'm not bothered by the habit like the other half of my family is. How can I get my husband to cool his jets and get my son to find another outlet for his big emotions while being a little more empathetic towards his brother's feelings? So a great question. And, and what I'm hearing here is that this isn't so much about um, 
how to deal with the whistling. I think you've nailed it. I, I think you're very on point and accurate here that he has discovered a behavior that other people have been stymied at how to get him to stop. And um, it annoys people. So he ex- he gets to keep people busy with him and he gets to express his power. The fact that things get inflamed tell me, tells me that it's power. He's in this power struggle. And so long as he continues to get these reactions, he's going to continue to use weaponize this behavior. So I think you've nailed it. I think what you're asking for help here is what do you do when you get it, but the other people don't? So knowing the the power of your influence is important here. I mean, how much more is there to do? You're doing your good part of not giving it payoff or feedback, not letting the child reach their goal. He's he's not in a power struggle with you because you're not phased. And interestingly, we see this in um, children that have deaf parents. They don't use the typical, he wouldn't whistle if you guys were deaf. He wouldn't whistle, or, you know, we see this with whining. Auditory irritants don't work on deaf parents, and so kids don't use those. You've already learned to, to not let this annoy you. And uh, and to let it go. And so it's really just about helping your husband see. So I'm sure you've explained it to him. And either he hasn't fully understood the concept of, of payoff and, and the dynamic between the two of them. So I want to make sure he really understands the, the, the theory that you're trying to describe to him. That's one thing. But the other thing is just to appeal to him and, and maybe say, you know, the way you've been going about things by getting upset and and then punishing him, it, has it led to a change in his behavior? Is it is it effective? And I think he could agree. No, it's not. This is a continuing problem. So at least we could get agreement from your husband and um, and the son, the brother who's who's annoyed by it, to say what you're doing now is is not effective at bringing about change. And uh, isn't it truly the definition of crazy to keep doing the same thing and expect to get a different outcome? So it's about inviting them into something curious to say, you know, l- would you be willing to do an experiment and to try something differently and to do it long enough? Uh, because I don't know how long he's discovered whistling and how long he's been annoying you with whistling. But if he's been doing it for two years, then I'm just suggesting that if you ignore it for one day, it's you're comparing a, doing a strategy for two years versus doing a strategy for one day. So this is like really getting them to make a commitment to a chunk of time. Maybe it's not two full years. I don't think this would take two years to resolve. But if you can just get them out of curiosity to say, yeah, in the spirit of experimentation, we will try this for two weeks. And let's just see if after two weeks, if we don't say anything, don't correct him, manage our own emotions, uh, fake it till we make it, whatever that might be, really pretend that we are, are in a sense, deaf, sub, you know, sub, selectively deaf to that particular sound and let it roll off of us like uh, water off a duck and just go about our business. Let's just see whether or not he finds whistling so interesting after two weeks. So, you know, I think uh, you're just educating them and, and getting them curious about and about doing an, an experiment. If they are not interested and they're going to keep their ways, that's fine. That's between them. That's There's no more you can do. That's the limit of influence. And I think that's that's important. I know that might be irritating for you to see your family at war when you feel that there's something so much better that could be happening. That's part of life in the family, in the family herd. 
On a meta level, again, we might say, why does he pick on his dad and his brother? What is it about that that he targets this uh, behavior in the family? And the things that you can be doing is, you know, how else can we help him find a place of importance? How else can we help him uh, have a meaningful contribution to the family? Where can he show up on the positive side of life? How do we fill his bucket and get him engaging and noticing that he can actually be empowered and helpful and, and gain attention and gain family engagement through harmony? And work on that part, and hopefully that will minimize his need to rely on this other creative solution for finding power and keeping people busying and, and needing to dominate and, as opposed to getting along. So you can work on that proactively. All right, next question. Hi, Allison. I've been a longtime listener and follower from before I had my own kids, and I was a nanny watching you on the parenting show. I love it's so much easier to nanny than to raise your own kids, right? It's funny how that is. <laughs> I love listening to your podcast and would love it if you could answer my question. Um, I have a nine year old daughter who is struggling. Uh, she's always had some anxiety and experienced selective mutism in kindergarten. She had a wonderful teacher for grades one and three, seemed to be coming out of her shell. And that was at the end of 2019 when her best friend moved away. And then in 2020, as we know, COVID hit. So I guess she's got a series of sort of discouraging things after finally having some growth. She's now in grade four and she is in school in person, but uh, was online again in Toronto. Her teacher is what I would describe as intense. She's great, but obviously has her own anxiety around COVID and is very, very strict. The class cohort was dismissed in February after only a few days back in school. And then after January, the school closures, they were closed for two weeks, then returned to in-person, but once again, exposed in April, just before the entire school system was shut down indefinitely. It's been a lot, obviously. So that's the backdrop. Since February, my nine-year-old has been having a lot of issues sleeping independently. She never co-slept as an infant and has been sleeping independently and through the night since she was less than a year old. This is completely new territory for us. Every night for months now, she comes out of her room multiple times crying between 9.30 and 11.30 p.m. She says she can't sleep. I respond, that's okay. She can read a book or draw or play quietly or whatever, and I really don't care what she does after bedtime. I like to have my adult time. She comes out every 15 to 30 minutes crying. It is so out of character. I don't know how to respond or what to do. She's told me about the stress of COVID and school and life and missing everything, and I get it. I empathize. I really do. She's not really one to, to, to talk about stuff during the day or outside the moment. She's full of pride and kind of just dismisses the subject when I bring it up at a neutral time. She also has a seven-year-old sister who she's extremely close to and who is always around, and she seems sensitive to discussing stuff in front of her, which I get. So... So far, I've been sending her back to bed repeatedly until I myself am ready for sleep, and then she has been crawling into her bed to sleep. She sleeps through the night with me about 11.30 to 6, which I know is not enough sleep for her, and it's not enough for me. She goes back to her own room around 6 and reads, plays quietly until the family rises together at around 7.30. I'm worried about this ongoing stress. I'm annoyed on my own behalf at having such interrupted evening time, but I am more concerned about her well-being and the long-term consequences of such poor sleep habits. I am not sure how to address it. I've tried being kind and understanding and inviting discussion. I've tried being strict and just shutting it down and sending her back to her room and then discussing it in the day. Nothing seems to work. She seems genuinely distraught, and I know she feels upset about it herself. She wants sleep. She's tired. I try hard not to make her feel ashamed or guilty about it, but it's been a really hard situation. Any advice is welcome. Oh, dear. So I, um, I can see 
that if this was in non-pandemic times, if we had a child that developed a sleep um, issue at nine, we would work on some sleep training and um, probably be on our way. But when she's nine and having sleep problems and we have an element of seeing these stressors in their life and seeing her distraught, we're more likely to buy into the storyline that this is a kid under distress and what kind of mother would I be if I was, uh, you know, not responding to to this. And yet, to your point, I know on some level that you you must feel that there's something up with this, that you're being a little bit played because I, I... you know, we, the anger that you get on the nights that you snap, which occasionally you say you do, um, you know, tells me that it's like, come on, like enough of this already. And I don't think when we we really have truly distraught kids, we're as quick to get to that anger because they're really pulling us into the empathy. So I would say it's fine to be cuddlier and to give more reassurances to our, our kids. I completely understand that. But the idea is that our kids get more feelings of security when we stick to s- schedules and routines. And having things suddenly become very chaotic at night and sometimes ending in fights and in the bedrooms and out of bedrooms and everything that's going on, this is adding to the anxiety of the pandemic. This is not calming the pandemic. So um, a couple things kind of strategically. I would make sure that she actually uh, has done some sleep training. And what I mean by that is if, if she's really been just going to bed since she was a baby, she may not actually remember or have, if she's been falling asleep without thought, without, without consciously using tools, you might want to revisit when you're lying in bed and when scary thoughts come or your mind gets to racing or whatever, here's some things that we can do to help us get ourselves to sleep. Does she know what position she sleeps in? There's no sense lying on your back looking at the ceiling if you know the only position you fall asleep on is on your tummy. And if she wants to feel some sense of connection, would she feel better having, uh, you know, she's probably got her own teddy bears or whatever, but maybe for extra security, she could have your um, pillowcase that smells like you or a t-shirt, but not you, just something that is, is, you know, comforting about you there. Would she like to sleep with her sister? I find siblings are wonderful at comforting each other. Then they're not alone. They have some little sibling time. Even if they have slightly different bedtimes, you're probably both going to get more sleep. So you might want to see whether or not her sister might bunk up with her. You don't necessarily have to move her bed in there. Maybe they sleep head to toe, toe to head, just at least while you you try it out. And of course, uh, you can also, just like in the morning, she seems to be completely fine to be able to read quietly um, at at six o'clock. So I know you've said that she can read or play or draw, but she doesn't seem to care to do that. But I would, again, just say that's the expectation that parents are unavailable. And, and that's really the trick. The trick is when she gets out of bed and when she's distraught to be able to just say, I'm sorry, you know, uh, I'm sorry it's it's hard when you can't sleep. Walk her back to her room, hand her her teddy bear, and just to do that repeatedly without letting her, you know, get in your bed. That's really the big thing there. If you want something a little bit less intrusive so you can get on with your, your evening time, you might say, well, read your books out here, but I'm not going to talk to you. You know, if you sit with your basket while I'm on my computer surfing, whatever, but I'm not going to to look at you. I'm not going to walk you back to bed. You can walk around the house like a ghost. 
and usually when they see that you're not going to engage with them, but you didn't force them back into their bedroom, you know, they they might just decide it is kind of boring. Um, I've also heard of people just getting a little day bed, day mattress, whatever that might be, and putting that beside the master bed and just saying, you can't crawl into my bed. I need a good night's sleep. I can't sleep with three people in this bed. But if you want to take a sleeping bag and sleep on the floor, don't wake me up. Don't disturb um, because that's really, that's the point. We don't want her to throw the whole family schedule out of order for her needs. She has to make the accommodation to fit into the family schedule without burdening other people. And that's kind of what we're working for there. And I'm just hoping by keeping it on the low down, not letting her have you spend the evening with her and then sleep with you, that she'll uh, dig deeper into her coping skills. Because again, I'm not saying she might not be making herself upset and thinking scary thoughts. But, you know, you're not going to figure out ways to calm yourself until the rubber hits the road. You know, I mean, now this is a drastic example, but it would be like, you know, imagine if whatever, she was like, put in a prison cell and she knew that she couldn't reach her parents and she was just in this prison cell and I'm sure she'd be frightened. Again, please, I'm using this as like a a madly wild example just to get the idea across. If you know that your your parents are not an option, that nobody's going to come check on you, that you are just going to be there and you are frightened, now the the uncomfortableness of being frightened is going to be there and you're going to want to calm yourself. And so, I don't know, you, suddenly you're going to see a little mouse in the corner of your jail cell and you're going to say, oh, look at the little mouse. Maybe this little mouse is my friend. Uh, maybe he's, he's here to keep me company. Or maybe you stay at the uh, the cinder blocks and you look at the cinder blocks and you see a little crack and you say, oh, I wonder if I made myself really small if I could crawl into that safe little place of that cinder block. And you get creative around finding these ways to distract and calm yourself from the situation. But if you know that your parents have the key, you know, if your parents are going to come, you're more likely to stay upset and just to continue to plead and 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 want that outcome. You know, lie with me, care for me, do whatever. Uh, and so they're more likely to keep themselves agitated to reach you as a goal. It's the absolutism that you are not an option that will create the conditions by which the child will start digging around to get more creative about how to get themselves calmed. And you don't have to feel guilty because you've done your part around saying, I've come, I've rubbed your back, I've got your teddy bears, you are safe. You've got the right to walk around. You've got the right to sleep on a mattress beside me, but you don't have the right to disturb and get in my life. That's invade my my personal time. Okay. What else have we got here? I think the very last one here. How do you get your children to do their homework without both of us ending up in tears? <laughs> well, um, so I start with just doing a little check of some of our principles. One is you can't make a child do anything. You can only make them wanna. So we can't use force. We have to use a method of inspiration that creates intrinsic motivation. So there's that. So if you force They'll just refuse and you end up with a fight and you get into win-lose and revenge. It's just not worth it. So there's no point in fighting. No point in fighting with a child. You will be defeated. So we're going to abandon that idea. Then we got the how do we make them wanna. Now we're down to like, well, you know, this is really their responsibility. And I think that's important for the, the child to understand, for the teacher to understand, and for you to understand. So you can reach out and just say, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best to be a supportive parent, but I'm having a hard time motivating them to do their homework. And I'm unwilling to, to fight about it. I'm willing to support 
but I'm not willing to fight. Do, do you have any suggestions? And then I would dig in a little deeper about what is it about the homework that they are having troubles with, difficulties with. Because it might be that, you know, not all kids are assigned homework that's really engaging, which is too bad. I, I mean, I don't really like homework. I think when you're done school, you should be done school. And if you are given homework, it should be something like a project that's super fascinating to you that extends the learning. But, you know, doing worksheets or whatever, just, ugh, you know, who needs it? But find out, you know, what it is that uh, that is getting in their way and see whether or not we can do some work around that. You know, are they, how are they so behind in school that they feel like it's useless, they can't get caught up? But often what I find with kids that don't want to do homework is they don't want to do things that they don't want to do. They don't want to do what they don't want to do. It's a reflection often of a entitled attitude. And kids who develop an entitled attitude haven't got the idea that sometimes we need to get on with doing the requirements of, of living, the, you know, the needs of the situation. I'm a student. I got to do homework. It's part of the parcel. It's part of the aggravations of life. And so there's sort of a, an understanding of reality and having to meet those responsibilities. But somebody who's been raised to have responsibilities removed for them, um, such that, you know, if they don't like what was served for dinner, they get special dispensation and they complain and another meal gets given to them. Or if they don't clean up their toys and you ask them to and they say, I don't like to clean up toys, I just like playing with them. And you know, you go a couple of rounds and then you tidy up their toys for them. There's a, you know, of course, when you sit them down and say, well, now there's homework, do your homework. They're like, mm, no, I don't really have to. I don't like it. I only do things I like. That's kind of how the world works. It has so far for this many years of my life. So we really have to get out of that entitled attitude around everything in their life, not just the needs of getting homework done. And we have to show them the outcomes. You know, you're responsible for your learning and the reason why we do our, our homework and, you know, we want to learn our course material so that we get an education so that we become a well-rounded person and grow and um, open up doors of knowledge. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing. And if you're not interested in, in growing and learning, then that's a choice you can make. But if you don't hand in the, the papers and you don't show the teacher that you know anything, then you fail. And when you fail, you actually have to just have to repeat it. It doesn't actually go away. It just means you got to do it again. And you think the first time around was boring. Wait till you have to do it a second time. We often have to call on the power of the relationship with the teacher for the teacher to be able to say, like, I was looking forward to seeing your homework. I wanted to see what you were going to write on that project. There can, can can be help that way, too. And it could be that sometimes you have to, like, get kids caught up if they've fallen behind. And sometimes kids work really well with a tutor or sometimes they work better in, in study groups. Sometimes we find that once we back off and say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to force you to do your homework. I'm just going to get on with the next thing. Sometimes our kids realize, oh, well, hold on a second here. Now that we're not having the fight and my mom's free to do, or dad is free to do other things, now they're they're moving on and playing with my sibling. You know, I wanted them here with me. So so sometimes I find that the whole fight is really just about monopolizing a parent's time. So until we can sort of figure out what the, that usefulness is, there's a, a bunch of things there. But I, I made a decision very early on in my kids, like actually even kindergarten, as soon as my kids went to school. I was like, you know what, that's really between you and the teacher. I never gave my kids any indication that homework or managing homework was my was my responsibility. Um, I did have a home that was conducive to doing homework. We would put on music. We'd sit at the table. I would do my work on my computer. We'd put out snacks at that time. It was sort of a social hour. So, you know, we tried to make it kind of nice and, and friendly. If you asked me a question while I was cooking dinner, I might, you know, uh, give you a clarifying question. But if you didn't hand it in or whatever, that was really 
really between, I didn't check my kids' agendas. I told them, I said, you know, I told the teachers right in front of them, I, you know, Lucy, Zoe, they're very good students. They're, you know, they're, um, I trust them to to manage this independently. And um, I'll, let's go with that assumption. So if things get so far off the rails that you think that you need to apprise me of something, then for sure. But I don't need to hear an update every day in an agenda. <laughs> and so, and I, I managed to keep that as that policy all the way through. And I think because my kids kind of heard that, they really did take the ball and run. So I hope that's helpful to you. And thank you for your questions, everybody. Stay well, and we'll catch you next time with your questions. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.